Good morning, loved ones. It is so good to be with you all. And I just want to echo what Nick said. Welcome any visitors. Thank you for being here. And to echo what Gary said, we are super excited for Erin Owens joining us and our team. We think she's going to be a great gift to this church. She's already downstairs helping out. Um, So we're really happy about her being here as well. Before I get into the sermon, uh, I just want to start with a prayer over what's going on in our world right now. There's a lot of stuff. Um, A lot of stuff, a lot of fear happening in the Middle East and everywhere. So let's let's, uh, give that over to God. Lord, we come before you today, and I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like to have omniscience on days like today, and um, how your heart is so heavily burdened about all the stuff that's going on, and all the violence, and people who are your own, in your own image that are attacking each other. And Lord, we pray that there be peace. We pray that your peace reign over all of the world. And where there are wars, we pray that those end. And um, we pray that your kingdom come here on earth as in heaven and heal our world. And Lord, we're praying Maranatha. Lord, come quickly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the spiritual exercises that I have been going through through my spiritual direction training was praying through my earliest memories. And one of the things that I noticed whenever I started doing that, especially in my younger years, I noticed this weird trend of how I would make these very strange lies to my friends. And they were pretty elaborate. For example, I lied to a bunch of my friends in elementary school that I bungee jumped down a volcano. And most of them believed me because they're in fifth grade. But I also, that same year, lied to my friends and said, while I was riding my bike home from school one time, I started petting some deer that were running next to me. That was, they ran close to me, but not close enough for me to pet them. And I also lied to a group of my friends that I was the starting quarterback on a fake football team in the same league that they were in. And most of them believed me, and then they got mad at me when they found out that wasn't true, turns out. But as I reflect on things like this, I noticed this sort of ugly part of my heart as to why I was doing those things. It was because I was caring so deeply and I would do whatever it took to get it, but about the approval of other people. I wanted it, I craved it more than anything. And I think our culture pumps out a lot of people like this. Whether it's like me and you exaggerate a bunch of stories about yourself to impress people, or you do good things intentionally so other people will notice it, Or maybe you do something that is unwise, or perhaps illegal, just to get a few laughs. Or how we take all the credit whenever we know that we don't deserve it. Or how we spend hours to look more and more attractive so we can look like the Photoshop perfect people on Instagram. Or how we spend so much time on social media trying to create this image or brand for ourselves. And we get deflated whenever we don't get the amount of likes or followers that we want. We gauge our worth based on that. The approval addiction is rampant in the human heart. There is such a hunger for people to find their worth in in the approval of other people. And I would wager that everybody in this room has either struggled with this or is currently battling this on a daily basis. And to be clear, there is a human need to be loved. 
to feel worthwhile, to have approval and find approval in other people. That what I am and who I am, it matters, and that I'm significant. We all want to find and feel these things, but our problem is that we are looking for that approval in all the wrong places. What I'm describing today is the forgotten vice of vainglory. And vainglory is probably one of the most powerful vices in my life. I would imagine that most of you in here have not heard of this word before. It's kind of archaic. But I think we should kind of bring it back, because vainglory is the sin of our time. Breaking down the word vain, meaning false or fake, and glory meaning something good that has been revealed. So it is a fake revealed goodness. As Rebecca DeYoung in Glittering Vices, she defines it, vainglory is the excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval from others. So the human need for worth and approval, significance, that is in and of itself is not a bad thing. It is the excessive and the disordered desire for it. And the, if we seek recognition with the wrong means or wrong methods, and if we seek recognition with the wrong motive. So let me give you an example for each of these three. For the first one, it would look like being famous for something sinful. That would be one thing. It would also be having the appearance of doing something good or being good, but how you got there, the means in which you got there was through shady, illegitimate ways. Maybe it was cheating or taking a shortcut. And for that last one, it's doing something good specifically for the motive of other people recognizing me and applauding me. And some of you may hear that and may think that kind of sounds similar to pride, and it does because whenever you pull on vainglory, you're pulling on pride as well because pride is the root of these other vices. But somebody can be prideful without vainglory. Somebody can think that they are the best thing on the planet but not care at all about the opinion of another person. But that pride-vainglory hybrid happens all the time. We see it in TV shows, movies, all the time. For example, Beauty and the Beast. If you know Gaston, he has that whole song that's dedicated to himself, and he's having everybody else revel and celebrate him being the best, right? Or Michael Jordan in his Last Dance documentary. You saw how he took everything personally, right? Whenever someone didn't think he was as great as he thought he was, it was a personal shot to him. And we, we see this play out in so many different ways. However, it's also possible for fear to be brought into this elixir of vainglory. Perhaps our need for the approval of other people comes because we don't think that we're very great ourselves and we need other people to tell us that we're good. It comes from this insecurity because we don't feel great about ourselves. For this person, the desire is more that they appear to be great more than it is for them actually becoming great. They just need to find approval in something because they do not feel good. Vainglory takes a lot of really ugly forms, and perhaps the character in Scripture that makes me think of vainglory more than any other is King Nebuchadnezzar. Whenever we talk about the pride-vainglory hybrid, man, he's, he's up there for one of, the, one of the best. A little background on Nebuchadnezzar. His father was the founder of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And Nebuchadnezzar was set to reign from an early age because he was the oldest son. And he was a great military leader before he became king and afterwards too. But after his father died, he had the high task 
of running the most powerful empire in the world at the time. He had a high standard to match in his father, which that surely had to affect his desire to want to be seen as great and special. So whenever he was king, he led a siege of Jerusalem in 586 BC because the king of Jerusalem refused to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. And the temple was destroyed and the people were brought into Babylonian captivity. And this all sets the scene for the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, you really begin to see how much Nebuchadnezzar loves recognition. First off, he surrounds himself with a bunch of (laughs) kiss-ups. The people all around him are screaming, long live the king and your majesty. They call him that constantly. And a big reason, I think, why they kiss up to this guy so much is because he is extremely unstable. (laughs) We read in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, he has this vivid dream. And he calls in all of his magicians and astrologers to tell him what it meant. And you can begin to see some of his instability in verse 5 of chapter 2. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you wonderful gifts and honors Just tell me the dream and what it means. This guy is unhinged, right? You either tell me this or you're toast. But if you do tell me this, oh, your life's going to be wonderful. And unfortunately for them, they cannot tell the king the meaning of his dreams. So he lives up to what he said, and he orders for these people to be executed. And among this group would have been Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Since they were taken into captivity, they were kind of brought into the wise counsel of the king, So the guards come in and say to everyone basically that they're getting executed. And Daniel's like, whoa, 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 maybe I can tell the king his dream and what it means like you do if you're going to die otherwise. (laughs) So he buys some time and God reveals to Daniel what the dream was and what it meant. And he's before Nebuchadnezzar and he describes to him the dream that he had. And in this dream, there's this huge statue that's made of a bunch of different metals, a head being gold and different materials. And then there's a rock that comes and destroys, it strikes the feet of this statue, and then it all crumbles and gets blown away with the wind. So, pretty interesting dream. And Daniel then interprets this for the king in verse 36. It says, that was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, (laughs) you are the greatest of kings. There's that flattery. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world. He has even put wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. And I think once those words came out of Daniel's mouth, Nebuchadnezzar stopped listening. (laughs) Because he goes on to talk about what this dream means is that his kingdom is going to come to an end. It's going to get replaced by another one, and that one's going to get replaced by another one, and that one's going to get replaced by another one, until this rock that's cut from this mountain comes and establishes its rule forever and ever and ever. And that is representing the kingdom of God. And I think he stops listening because of what we see in Daniel chapter 3. What Nebuchadnezzar does in response to this interpretation of Daniel, says King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue... 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. (laughs) Remember, because he is the head of gold, right? So he makes this all a gold statue, all about himself. And then he sent messages to the high officers, 
officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the king or before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, "People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow down to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace." There's that instability again. But instead of hearing what Daniel's interpretation was, that it was actually something that he should be alert, <laughs> that his kingdom's going to come to an end, he almost like reinterprets this dream. He's like, you know, how about, I love the idea that I'm the head of gold, what if, just spitballing here, what if I make this 90-foot statue that's golden all about me, and instead of that rock being the thing that you know, reigns over the world forever and ever. What if it's my kingdom? What if it's my reign? So he essentially makes everyone bow and worship his own greatness. And if they refused to approve and worship the king, they were in deep trouble. Because Nebuchadnezzar could not handle the thought of someone not thinking he was as great as he thought he was. Nebuchadnezzar's vainglory was deep. He has this really unhealthy need for approval for absolutely everyone. And what happens next is complete conformity. Everyone bows down and worships the king except for these three pesky Jews that protest. And then as Nebuchadnezzar heard this, he gets thrown into this rage and his vainglory, it turns into wrath and vengeance. And he gives them one more chance to bow down. And we read this in verse 16 of chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. I just feel like this is sarcastic every time they say your majesty, so I'm going to read it that way, even though it's probably not, but anyway. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So this response right here is the difference between needing the approval of other people versus caring only about the approval of God. That is what enables Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to say these words. Even whenever they're facing this pressure of conformity, every single person in the crowd is bowing down except for them. And they know that the punishment for this is death. They're like, I don't care. All I care about is what God thinks. All I care about is God's approval and God's affirmation, and he can save me if he wants to. And Nebuchadnezzar lost it after that. And verse 19 says he was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. That's the definition of overkill. But the deep pride and insecurity and the need for people to approve and worship the ground he walks on, basically. It just caused him to explode whenever that didn't happen. And this demonstrates a very clear truth to us about vainglory. As the rapper Lecrae says, if you live for people's acceptance, you'll die from their rejection. If all we care about is winning the approval of other people, the moment that we do not receive that, it will devastate us. We will crumble. 
even if most of this crowd, even if 99% of this crowd was bowing down, he couldn't handle just simply three people not singing his praises. And we're not too different. We receive tons of affirmations and encouragement from people, but the moment we get one critical word said to us, it just kind of hangs there, right? We can post something and see a lot of positive feedback. We can see a bunch of likes and positive comments, but there's that one negative comment. Or maybe that one person that didn't like your post that you wanted to, and it kind of stings. It could be whenever we spend so much of our time and energy doing so much for our family, doing all of this unseen work, and all you want is just a simple thank you, and you don't get it. And it just crushes your soul. These are all things, and much more, that we allow to devastate our hearts. And notice that I said allow, because it doesn't have to be that way. So how do we fight against this disordered and excessive desire for approval? I would say the primary vice of Jesus' main opponents, the religious leaders of the day, was that of vainglory. In Matthew 23, Jesus calls them hypocrites because they clean the outside of the dish, but the inside is full of wickedness. Or another way, another metaphor he uses is calling them whitewashed tombs. Super clean and nice looking on the outside, but inside full of death and decay. Very graphic image. Hypocrisy is the fruit of vainglory. Hypocrisy comes from the word hypocrite, which was originally used to describe actors that wore different masks. And we as human beings, we love putting on a bunch of different masks about how we're seen. We put so much time and energy into our image and our reputation. But Jesus says that we get this backwards. That we're not supposed to be focusing on what's on the outside the image that we give off to people, we're supposed to be focusing on the inside and letting that translate then to the outside. Otherwise, we're just whitewashed tombs. So church, let's stop acting like our lives are highlight reels. Let's examine our motives whenever we put on our Sunday best. Is it to create this image that we are a perfect, polished churchgoer? Is it for the sake of status or reputation? Or is it genuinely for the sake of, I'm doing this as an act of worship to God? It's important to look into our hearts here. For myself, this looks like making sure I practice what I preach. And not just saying the right words to get a few amens or a few positive comments after the service. Because the truth is, church, God sees through all of the appearances, all of the masks that we put up. He sees our hearts. He knows us for who we are. And as the Lord says to Samuel, whenever he's trying to find the next king of Israel, one of the popular verses, 1 Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, and boy, don't we. But the Lord looks at the heart. There is absolutely nothing we can hide from God. He sees everything. There are no masks that we can put up that he cannot see through. And as such, Jesus tells us how we ought to be. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, he says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, a.k.a. vainglory. For you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. 
When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to the acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. So in two different ways here, we see Jesus say, do not do good things simply for the recognition of other people. Do those good things for God and God alone. In other words, church, we live for an audience of one. That is how we get off of this disgusting hamster wheel of needing people's approval only then to find disappointment. So then you need more approval and then you're met with more disappointment. This is never going to satisfy you if you are seeking the approval of other people. You will always be disappointed. Always. I can promise you that. But church, we have an audience of one. All that matters for us is what God thinks about us. The only approval that matters is the approval of God. And once our souls discover that and truly believe it in our hearts, it changes everything in our lives. And I mean everything. So how do we live for an audience of one? And these are all just me speaking from experience because this is a lifelong battle for me. First thing I'd say is listen to God's voice in solitude. Defeating vainglory, it all starts by hearing the truth about what God says about you and who you really are. But the problem is we live such distracted and hurried lives that we're not giving God any time to really speak into our lives unless he starts speaking forcefully. So we need to slow down so we can hear the affirmation of God. In solitude, it means getting away from all of the distractions of our life. That might mean going and being in nature. That might mean on your commute to work, although sometimes that one's kind of hard to really uh, not be distracted whenever there's so much traffic and everything, but, or whenever you're putting your kids down for bed and just being in your house, being with God. That's what solitude is. Solitude is one of the most important practices, I think, for people who struggle with vainglory because you remove all of the audiences that you're performing for. So, who you are with your work friends, who you are with your family, who you are at church, all of those masks that we wear, these performances, these images we project fall over because you are just standing there alone before God and there is nowhere to hide. And that might feel a little scary, but it is so freeing, church. Practicing solitude has absolutely changed my life and I'll come back to that point in a second. Another way to kill vainglory is cutting out unnecessary performances. We have a lot of audiences we perform for. So if we're able to remove some of them, I would say go for it. For example, social media was one of those for me, where the world is literally your audience. I used to care so much about social media. I mean, I was a product of my generation, but... I would spend so much time trying to craft the perfect funny post or this really deep thing to make people think that I was this funny, deep, wise human being. 
And every single time that I would hit post, I had this little hope in my heart that maybe this was the time I would finally feel worthy. Maybe this was the time I'd finally feel worthwhile and find the approval that I needed. But every single time, I was met with disappointment. Or if I was met with a lot of approval, I wanted more of it again, and then I didn't get it, and then I was really deflated. So after hearing that some people just cut it out of their lives, I'm like, that's something you can do? I did it. (laughs) And I have never looked back. One of the best decisions of my life. So avoid the audiences that you can avoid. Another way to kill vainglory is to take a back seat. Whether that's in conversations or whether that's places of recognition, we do not need to be the person that's taking all the limelight all the time. As I've shared before, (laughs) while I was a freshman at Harding especially in my early years of college, I thought I knew everything. And I made sure my professors and my classmates understood that I knew everything. (laughs) So I would always make comments in class. And there came a point once I started recognizing this vice in my life, I stopped sharing all of these wonderful, beautiful insights for myself. And I just kept it between me and God as like a form of worship. It was repentance every time that I kept an idea to myself. I'm not saying don't ever share your thoughts in class. But I am saying if you have a gross motive in your heart like I did for why you were sharing, take a back seat. It's going to be really helpful for you in the long run. Another huge way to kill vainglory, and this is so important, embrace upside-down secrecy. We get secrets wrong. What we do is we put our lives on this massive highlight reel. We brag about all the great things that we do in life. But we keep quiet all of our sin. We keep quiet all of our darkness in us. We don't show weakness. We don't cry in front of people, right? Jesus says we get this wrong. The upside-down kingdom brought a new way to deal with secrets. That you're supposed to keep quiet the good that you do. You're supposed to do this in private, right? But if we're supposed to boast in anything, we're supposed to boast in our weakness, right? We're supposed to be vulnerable. In confession, we find healing. But we don't like confession. But church, there is maybe nothing else in the world that's more freeing than confession. Where you are sharing with people the dark parts of your hearts. Because each time that you confess, you are killing your pride. And you are killing vainglory. And you are mending the cracks in your heart. The Holy Spirit is mending the cracks in our hearts every time that we confess. So as we come together, let's be here with our guards down. Let's not try to act like we got it all together as a church. And life is just happy and great whenever there's deep sorrow in our lives. Let's be our real selves because that is worship before God. And lastly, let's embrace failure. Those who struggle with vainglory are terrified of rejection and failure. They cannot let their image be tarnished. But nonetheless, there will come points in our lives where we fail so bad, we fall on our face so bad that we cannot hide it as much as we want to. We try to hide our failures all the time. Maybe we try to spin them to make them look that they're not that bad, right? But there's going to come a point. Maybe it's already happened or maybe it will happen many other times in your life where you fail so bad and everybody can see it and you have to face this humiliation that your image and your reputation is permanently 
tarnished. But church, having our masks stripped off of us in humiliation is maybe one of the most freeing things imaginable. In Daniel 4, we read that God stripped everything away from Nebuchadnezzar because he refused to give glory to God and takes it all for himself. And his famous last words in Daniel 4.30 says, As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Even that word display, right? That's that projection. Everybody look at this. And as he is saying those words, God takes it all away. And then he becomes like this horror movie creature where his hair gets really long and feathery and he gets these like super long claws and starts eating grass. Rough time in his life, for sure. He was at rock bottom. His image was tarnished. But in his humiliation, he no longer looked to the approval of other people because there were no people left. So all he could do was turn to God. And as he did look to God and turn to him, God restored his sanity and his status. It was through Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation that became his true freedom. I have failed so many times in my life. So many times. And I have tried to cover up and spin things to make it look not bad. But there have been times I've just fallen flat on my face in front of people. And there were points in my life I felt zero worth. I thought I was hopeless. I thought I had no hope in being an effective minister. I was this close to throwing in the towel because I did not think I could handle it. I didn't think I could handle the criticism and all the hard decisions you have to make. And I mean, it was so much piling on at once. And I just, I was at this really low point, just broken down. And God met me there. He met me in my shame and humiliation. And he restored to me my worth. He showed me that he affirmed me and he approved of me. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) He showed me that before the foundation of the world that he loved me and he chose me. And it was his pleasure, and as Ephesians 1 says, it was his pleasure to adopt me into his family. He restored to me that my deepest, truest identity is that I'm a child of God and no one can take that away from me. And church, once that started resonating in my heart, (laughs) my desire and care for what other people thought about me just started crumbling. I'm not saying I'm perfect and I have gotten over vainglory Woohoo! No, I still let that creep in. But through the Spirit's sanctification, I'm able to dismantle it so much quicker now because I care about God's approval more than I care about any of y'all's. No offense. <laughs> so church, let's be real. Let's take off our masks. Let's stop trying to keep up this, we got all things going for us and everything is all good and shiny and great. Church needs to be the place where authenticity thrives, not hypocrisy. May the Spirit of God help us resist the vice of vainglory and walk the path to true glory, which in case you were wondering does not involve building a 90-foot golden statue of yourself and making everybody bow down to it. That is vainglorious. But true glory comes through following in the steps of Jesus, the truly glorious one, 
and the rightful one that all the world is supposed to bow the knee to. Or as Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, my favorite passage in the Bible, that you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Jesus was not playing status games. And therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this morning, church, if you would like to make that confession that Jesus is Lord, if you want to get baptized this morning, we can make that happen. But... Church, I cannot express this enough, how important confession is. We're going to have people lined up around the room that are there to pray for you about whatever's going on. It's also a great opportunity for confession, but I understand we all have vainglory in us. We don't want people to think that we have something going wrong in our life, but we all have something going wrong in our life, right? So find that person maybe after service and talk to them. Text somebody during the week that you can have real conversations with and let down that mask. And let me tell you, once you start doing that, you're going to experience the true freedom of God. So if you would stand with me, we're going to end in communal confession again. If, if you would say that you have the sin of vainglory, I would respectfully ask that you read these words with me. Our glorious Lord, we confess our sin of vainglory. We admit that we have found our worth in the approval of your creation instead of you, the creator. We have chased after fake goods. We have wrongly sought after recognition. And our motives have been impure. Forgive us of this sin and renew in us the untarnishable identity of Christ. Amen.